Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, July 24th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It's got the head of a goat, the body of a lion, and the tail of a snake. It's a shimira. It's a chimera. It's a shimira. Shimira. We don't know how to say this. This was the week where every Slate podcast mispronounced the word of this mythological beast. Here, yesterday, the Slate Culture Gap Fest with Stephen Metcalf and company trying to say this animal's name. Engineering chimera, chimera. What do we go with here? Chimera? 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 Oh, dear. <laughs> We're going to need an intervention from the booth on this one. <laughs> we might. Anyway, for now, we'll say chimera, chimera. Now, you wouldn't know this. You couldn't know this because we cut it out of Hang Up and Listen. But we got all hung up. And by we, I mean me, not Josh Levine or Stefan Fatsis on our sports podcast that we do Monday. We got hung up saying the same word. That says, yeah, this is uh, this is a... Uh, What's I keep pronouncing wrong? Chimera? Chimera? Chimera. Chimera? Why can't we say Chimera? It's because the beast itself is incoherent. So you know how I said it has the body of a lion and the head of a goat and the tail of a snake? Kind of, but not really. It actually has the head of a lion also. The whole thing's a lion with a little goat head stuck on. And the goat head, in many depictions, doesn't even come out of the neck. Just like a free-floating goat head on the back. And the tail of a snake? All right, the tail of the whole thing is a snake, but it's not the snake's tail. It's the snake's head, which is definitely cooler, but not that logical. So, heads or tails, I guess both are right with the shimmera. From now on, I'm going to go with the Flamdingo Rilla Madras, which is the ear of a flamingo, the nose of a dingo, the chest of a gorilla, the joie de vivre of a llama, all wearing a Madras shirt. It's a highly endangered creature. And the Slate Double X Gab Fest is going to have to mispronounce the Flamdingo Rilla Madras next week. On this here, this episode of The Gist, I will tell you in the spiel why I do think that some people deserve to die, and yet I still want the death penalty banned. And before that, I'll ask the question that needs asking. Roman Emperor, overrated job, but first being inundated with someone else's Facebook messages. Facebook, it's great for keeping up with loved ones, for following bands, 
for fielding hundreds of messages from someone other than you that you can't shut off. This was the plight of a few users for whom Facebook has turned into the 21st century version of a tooth filling that is receiving a radio station that you don't want to receive. Kashmir Hill covers privacy and social media and technology for Forbes, and she's become sort of a patron saint or at least a beacon of hope for those poor folks standing in front of the unasked for Facebook firehose. Hello, Kashmir. Sure. So tell me about this guy. What's his name? Paul Hoffman, who's a lawyer, who's 63, who started getting some messages he didn't want to get. Paul Hoffman is a tax lawyer in Beverly Hills. He has never used Facebook. He never wanted to be a Facebook user. He's not interested in all the kind of social media stuff. But he started um, getting a bunch of emails from Facebook, telling him about friend requests, telling him about messages he'd received. And he realized that Facebook thought he was a Facebook user who had apparently signed up with his email address. Were they mostly a curious annoyance or, you know, a real problem? They were annoying. It was, you know, more spam in his inbox. He is a busy lawyer. He has lots of legitimate people who he wants to hear from contacting him. But he also was very concerned about the privacy of the user whose Facebook messages he started to get because, uh, as any Facebook users out there know, when somebody emails you privately, you get a copy of that message sent to your email address. So he was getting this guy's private uh, Facebook messages. Some woman who apparently their relationship was going sour, and Paul Hoffman was hearing about it. Now, if this were a hilarious rom-com, Paul Hoffman would intercede with ways to win back the heart of Sherry. But it is not a hilarious rom-com. It is an annoyed lawyer. So what can an annoyed lawyer do? He went to Facebook's website and tried to find a person to call Um, a person to email to tell them, hey, I'm getting someone else's messages and I don't want to get them. And he wasn't able to find any place on Facebook uh, to to talk to a real person. So he actually took, there's like a little uh, physical address that you see at the bottom of your Facebook email. And so he sent, you know, he typed up this lawyerly letter and mailed it in the snail mail to Facebook uh, and then never heard back. Uh, so then he told his daughter, who's younger and is a Facebook user, and she went to the Facebook Help Center, sent a message to Facebook saying, hey, you know, my dad is receiving someone else's messages. She never heard back. And then she actually tried to reach out to uh, this, this other user, this guy named Pat, and tell him that someone else was getting his messages. But uh, Facebook has this kind of dual inbox where people you know uh, go into your main inbox and you see the messages, and then there's a shadow inbox that a lot of people don't know about and don't look at. So she assumed that her messages wound up there because she also never heard back from any of them. So after all those failed attempts, Paul and his daughter eventually reached out to you, and you were able to get in touch with Pat. Yeah, so I reached out to Pat. I told him, you know, this lawyer was getting his messages. I asked him about Sherry. He told me she was an ex, and he was really disturbed that someone else had been learning all these things about him. And so he went ahead and deleted his account. They, they expressed concern that it was happening, but apparently they couldn't fix it internally. And, you know, to, for them, it's one user out of a billion. And so, I, I, you know, I don't think they took it that seriously. After I wrote about it, they've again created um, a help center form for people who are having this problem. And they say they take it really seriously and they don't want to see it happening again. 
Yeah, if it's a percentage of a billion, like 1% of a billion is 10 million people finding out about Sherry breaking up with them. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in general, are they better at giving you the runaround than giving you the solution to your problem, a legit problem as a user? I think there's a problem with lots of different companies. It's hard to call these online companies we interact with all the time and talk to a real person and express our problems. Um, Facebook especially... Um, is difficult because it's not set up to be that way. And they have so much sensitive information about users. You know, they have help centers, um, but they're just getting so many messages all the time. I think it's probably hard for them to differentiate between what's really important and what someone's saying, you know, oh, my friend keeps posting ugly photos of me. Um, so, and, 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 you know, this isn't just a problem with Facebook. People get uh, email addresses associated with accounts that aren't theirs all the time. I had somebody comment on this article and tell me about somebody who has the same name as him that flies American Airlines, and he gets this guy's uh, flight confirmation every time in his boarding pass. And so theoretically, he goes to the airport and you board this guy's flight with the, the, the boarding pass, and he too doesn't know how to, how to get himself unsubscribed from those emails. So. I think this is happening a lot more than we realize, and most people just kind of hit delete and don't think that much about it. It's been said about Facebook. In fact, I think it was said on the Slate Political Gab Fest when they were talking about the experiment where Facebook violated some users' privacy and tried to manipulate emotions. Someone made the point that if it was Google doing that experiment, people would say, oh, cool, Google's so cutting edge. But because it's Facebook, people say, how dare Facebook does that? Do you find this? Do people really blame Facebook more so than they blame other similar companies, other social media companies? I think Facebook and Google tend to deal with a lot of people calling Facebook and Google evil. Facebook struggled so much in those early years, especially around privacy settings. There was the famous privacy setting change of 2009 where they pushed a lot of people's content public for the first time. And it was so confusing that it seemed like even Mark Zuckerberg was confused by it. And all of a sudden his uh, previously private profile had photos exposed, his events calendar exposed, his friend list exposed. Um, and so I think Facebook has lost a lot of trust when it did things like that. And so, yeah, I think it has kind of an uphill climb around trust from users. Kashmir Hill covers the parts where technology and privacy collide for Forbes. Thanks, Kashmir. Thank you. A couple of weeks ago, I was interviewing Jessica Pressler in a laundromat. I host a podcast, These Things Happen, and I made a joke or a reference or offered an insight to wit. You know, Mary likes her socks in balls and like, you know, <laughs> so-and-so likes them another way. And they, they do pay attention to that. That's definitely a part of it. And at what point did everyone in American society become a Roman emperor? I really don't know how to answer that. I mean, <laughs> my socks in balls, or I will behead the servant that does not. Oh my God, it's the Cersei Lannister economy. <laughs> now, I knew what I was doing. I knew I was honoring, referencing, evoking, ripping off a comedian. Tom Papa makes a joke about how we've all become Roman emperors. Great joke, well put. To wit, wife wants to go away and swim with the dolphins now. How spoiled a society have we become that we're swimming with the dolphins? What, are we all Roman emperors at this point? I feel like swimming. Get me a dolphin now. But you know, this brings up an important point. 
how many of my seemingly off-the-cuff witticisms are actually inspired by the host of The Marriage Ref? The answer is almost all of them. No, that's not the question it brings up. The question it brings up is... Roman emperors. How good did they really have it? Sure, there were the orgies, the fawning attendants, the treasure baths, the sumptuous meals, the orgies, really an orgy of orgies. But it was a high-stress job. You often got murdered. You often went insane. And just some of the modern conveniences like air conditioning or band-aids or soap, specifically meaning other people having access to soap, all those argue for 2014 beating any old Roman emperor. Joining me now is Ronald Malore, distinguished professor of history at UCLA. He studies Rome. He's also aware of things that go on in 2014. Hello. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm well. So let's take the good stuff. What are really the perks about being a Roman emperor? If the job's open, why would I want to take that? On the good side, you have lots and lots and lots and lots of slaves. Augustus, Livia, had 600 servants who were, you know, making clothes to fit. You don't buy anything off the rack. You don't get furniture from a store. You have slaves, you have workmen, you have craftsmen, and they do it all for you. So that is very nice, because otherwise you have to do it yourself, or you get your wife to make you a suit uh, or a toga. There are lots and lots and lots of slaves and servants and lots of places to live. So if the weather is one way, you go down to Capri. You know, a very wealthy Roman had his own little pool with fish in it. So that he, as you walk into the house, there's that pool in the in the atrium, in the hallway, and he can point out to his guests, look, we can have a fish from the Mediterranean. We can have a fish from the lakes. These are expensive things that have to be shipped in alive and kept there alive until you're ready to eat them. So there's this whole, whole range of things that, that for the emperor or for the wealthy senator are um, significant. Yes. So food, shelter and clothing, I would think that those would all be luxuries, even by today's standards. What about the day in, day out? Was it uh, a very stressful job? Did it have to be? Were the, was it a grind, a long grind to work at that job of emperor? A very hard grind, I think. I mean, we have to take examples of the people who were not so crazy. You know, a man like Tiberius spent the last 10 years of his life in Capri. Mm-hmm. He just did not want to be in Rome. He didn't like all these senators kowtowing to him. He didn't like all of the day-in, day-out flattery and bullshit that comes with power. And they would get murdered. That's not, that's not uh, just a oh, perception. Oh, they get murdered. They get murdered by their enemies, and they get murdered by their friends. And we have one who was murdered, who was strangled by his wrestling partner. So, you know, you can't, you don't know where you can be safe. It's like my personal trainer decided to kill me off. It would be, uh, it would be um, hard to defend. Right. It's like, I wonder why he wasn't training me that hard. Oh, it's so he could kill me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, what about, I'm thinking of in terms of illness, there probably were ailments that we just brush off now that could fell even a Roman emperor or, you know, things, uh, things that have been eradicated that would be dangerous to them. We do have emperors who probably had strokes. Caligula probably was epileptic. Mm-hmm. The Emperor Claudius, who many people know from I, Claudius, as this kind of stuttering, uh, doddering uh, type, probably had polio as a boy. Hmm. 
And he wasn't so stuttering and doddering. Some of that was a mask to keep himself alive, to keep himself less threatening to his uh, nephew Caligula. Um, you know, this, some of this comes uh, home a bit because next month, on the, eight, on the, ooh, the date, 19th of August, is the 2000th anniversary of the death of the Emperor Augustus. Mm-hmm. He lived... He lived 77 years, almost 50 years as master of the Mediterranean. And he was regarded in his youth as sickly. Uh, he made all these plans for succession, expecting to die. And he had a, uh, a doctor who was the best doctors were Egyptians. And his doctor was Antonius Musa, who sort of brought him back from the brink a few times. Um, but he hung in there and hung in there and hung in there and was, you know, I mean, he put back together after the civil wars with Antony and Cleopatra and everything else, he put back together an empire which lasted another 500 years. When we think about, you know, our guys who were there for four years trying to keep the show on the road, um, think about someone who's doing it for 50 years. Uh, you know, with rivals and with uh, people uh, wanting to fight a civil war and take power. It was extremely stressful. Is 77 old for an emperor? 77 is very old. The average, the Romans called you a senex, an old man, you know, senator comes from that, mm-hmm. when you were 45. You know, today there is this notion that too much of a good thing actually is not the formula for happiness, that, in fact, the Roman emperor lifestyle... It's not just that we've read all these accounts of celebrities who say, you know, after a while, all the wine, women, and song gets old. It's that actual researchers show that that's not the path to happiness. Is there any evidence of emperors themselves saying, all this stuff just isn't doing it for me? Well, uh, <laughs> let me quote two deathbed statements by Roman emperors. All right. One was the Emperor Augustus, who is my great hero. I've taught a course on him this year again, and and he... On his deathbed, at the age of 77, quoted a line from the end of a Greek play. It may remind you of something like A Midsummer Night's Dream. He says, if I've played my role well, give me your hand. Applaud. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's a role. He knew it was a role. And I think the difference between being successful and not very successful is having a certain amount of self-awareness that you're thrust into a role. The other is the Emperor Vespasian, a very earthy guy. And when he died in 79, he said, Vai, puto deus fieri. Uh-oh, I think I'm becoming a god. <laughs> <laughs> Sending the whole idea of emperor worship up on his deathbed. <laughs> I, th- I think that's very cute. So all told, is it better to have been your average Roman emperor or your average tenured professor at a great California university? Well, I think probably um, over the last 50 years, I've had an incredibly happy life as a tenured professor at a California university. I'm not quite sure that being a professor in the future is going to be quite as good, uh, especially in the humanities, which don't look to be as, uh, you know, as great. but I think it depends on your on your view. I mean, some of us, I was chair of the largest history department in the country with 80 professors, hundreds of students. And 
when I went back to being an ordinary professor where I could just get up and talk, I was relieved. I, I didn't like uh, the responsibility of people having nervous breakdowns, of this, of that, of fighting with people above me. So I think you'd have to look at this psychological thing. Would you, would, you know, would you like to be uh, doing what you're doing and do it well, or would you like to be out on the edge being, you know, like a Michael Jackson figure where every little thing you do is observed and criticized and drives you crazy. Yeah, I just wanted to say one thing. When you predicted or when you wondered how great being a tenured professor at a California university will be in the future, I just got this notion of you and you imagining Visigoths gathering at the gate. <laughs> Listen, the Visigoths are at the gates. They're called the California State Legislature. It's <laughs> good luck. Ronald Malore is a distinguished professor of history at UCLA. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. I never thought that our policy on executions would depend so much on execution. There are stronger arguments that the death penalty doesn't deter criminals. That's an accurate argument. That it's applied selectively, arbitrarily, and disproportionately along racial lines. That was such a compelling argument that the Supreme Court banned the death penalty for a time. But abolishing the death penalty because America can't find a reliable and efficient way to kill, it seems impossible, but it may just be where we are. Doctors and anesthesiologists won't participate, drug makers won't supply the drugs, alternative drugs are untested, and it seems, from a few recent cases, ineffective. Earlier this year, there was a botched execution in Ohio. In Oklahoma, the drugs injected into an inmate proved not to be especially lethal. The inmate died of a heart attack instead. And then there was this case just yesterday in Arizona. Here's media witness Troy Hayden of the Phoenix Fox affiliate describing the death of Joseph Wood. It was very disturbing to watch. Joe Wood is dead, but it took him two hours to die. And to watch a man lay there for an hour and 40 minutes gulping air, I can liken it to if you catch a fish and throw it on the shore, the way the fish opens and closes its mouth. And at a, at a certain point, you wondered if he was ever going to die. I mean, it was serious. Surveys show that the majority of Americans have long supported the death penalty. The most animating abolishment argument for Americans is the possibility of executing an innocent person. The Death Penalty Information Center lists 140 exonerations from death row over the past 41 years. The suffering of the executed is not the main reason why anti-death penalty Americans hold their views. But these botched executions are not helping the case of those who want to keep the death penalty legal. The main reason for continued legal execution, according to polls, is the idea that some people, the worst killers, deserve to die. The family members of Deborah and Jean Dietz, who were killed by this Arizona inmate, Joseph Wood, believe that. Yesterday, Richard Brown, who was there in 1989 when Wood killed his sister-in-law and father-in-law, yesterday Brown talked to the media. He said the media were overly concerned with the slow means of execution. Well, why didn't we give him a bullet? Why didn't we give him some Drano? Why didn't we give him something else? Everybody's worried about the drug. You know, these people that do this, that are on death row, they deserve to suffer a little bit. I would never say that Richard Brown is wrong for feeling those emotions. But his statement is what in argumentation is called giving away the game. 
the Supreme Court has ruled the death penalty must be carried out with the idea of minimizing suffering. By the way, that idea has led to the adaptation of a drug protocol that also emphasizes the minimization of the appearance of suffering. The chemicals that are given or were given before their supply was jeopardized include paralytic agents that serve no purpose other than to make it appear as if the executed isn't thrashing about. It's similar to how hoods were used during hanging, so witnesses wouldn't be confronted with the grotesque contortions on the faces of the condemned. And maybe it is the case that we twist ourselves into knots so as to sanitize the act. And maybe that should tell us something about the act itself. Maybe that's the reason that executions don't go swimmingly, because they're fundamentally flawed. Executions are supposed to help the families of victims, who are sometimes called co-victims. In fact, surveys of families show that while 40% say executions provide some form of healing, only 2.5% said it brought closure. And the lengthy legal process associated with a death penalty takes its toll. A death penalty panel commissioned by the state of New Jersey found that, quote, the non-finality of death penalty appeals hurts victims, drains resources, and creates a false sense of justice. Jeannie Brown, the sister and daughter of Joseph Wood's victims, said this yesterday. This is ridiculous. 25 years later for this to go through after appeal, after appeal, after appeal. It's emotionally crazy to have to do what I have been through. So does this argue for the death penalty or against it? Might the victims' families be better served by not having to go through this process at all? Admittedly, it's pretty patronizing to tell the families of murder victims, no, you'd be better off emotionally without the death penalty. And I know they'd counter, Jeannie Brown would counter, no, I'd be better off without those unnecessary delays. Of course, without those delays, those 140 exonerated inmates would have been dead long before they could have been cleared. The appeals process is slow for bad reasons and also for good reasons. So it's complicated. But for me, it comes down to this. I do think some people deserve to die, yes. Take any of these botched executions in the last year. The crimes committed were heinous. And if you told me that any of those murderers, say, died in a shootout with police at the scene of the crime, I'd say good. But if I were the governor of a state, I just couldn't be comfortable with the death penalty. 140 exonerated, botched executions, such capricious application of the law for only some crimes, sometimes, with some victims before some juries. And life in prison isn't a reward. It's not getting off easy. And it doesn't demonstrate a lack of toughness or resolve on the part of society. So that's where I end up and where we'll probably all end up in two weeks on August 6th, the states of Texas and Missouri are both scheduled to hold executions. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi has the ears of a producer of Slate Podcast, the shoulders of a lesser northern earless lizard, and the neck of a swan. Andy Bowers has the brain of the executive producer of Slate Podcast, the legs of a jackrabbit, and the soul of a stevedore. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. Or give us a like on Facebook. We reached the thousand-like milestone at facebook.com slash slategist. But technically, we are only at 994, meaning along the way, six people took away a like. So please, go to facebook.com slash slategist and give us a real like. And or sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. You can email us at thegist at slate.com. 
You can email the gist at slate.com. Possible topic tomorrow. It's an Antan twig, and we still haven't decided on a loft star. And if you don't know what that means, facebook.com slash slate gist. We're assembling a guide for newbies. I have a head for business, a bod for sin, a face for radio, a voice for a butcher shop. And thanks for listening.